Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll discuss tax policy with George Callis. He is the executive vice president of public finance at Arnold Ventures and a former senior Capitol Hill staffer where he worked on tax policy. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and our chief economist Steve Robinson, who also are both Capitol Hill veterans, will join me for that conversation. And with George, we'll get into some thorny tax questions uh, Congress needs to resolve in the near term, particularly what to do about a number of expiring provisions. And then we'll ask George about long-term tax policy, what we need to do as we confront a unsustainable debt. George uh, Callis is the perfect person to guide us through these issues. Aside from his work at Arnold Ventures, uh, he served for 15 years on Capitol Hill, primarily as a senior tax counsel uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he worked for the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee. He also worked for former Speaker Paul Ryan. George has developed a strong reputation uh, for being able to work across the aisles to get bipartisan legislation through. Certainly a skill that's needed now. George, Tory, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. We're going to talk tax policy, and uh, there's a a lot to say about tax policy. Let's start with some things that are right before Congress in the the near term. Something um, there's something uh, called tax extenders, Uh, and this is a term that gets thrown around on Capitol Hill. And I'm not sure that many people have a firm grasp on what that term means if they just happen to read about it. Um, Well, just try to explain the concept of tax extenders, why they're there and, uh, you know, approximately what they're intended to do. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's actually over the years become a little bit of a fluid concept, but I'll I'll take a, a stab at um, what it what it sort of means amongst policymakers. Generally, uh, there are numerous and when I say numerous, you know, dozens, scores of tax provisions in the Internal Revenue Code uh, that either recently have expired or or expire at some future date. Um, they, they, uh, they, they usually, you know, 90 something percent, probably close to a hundred percent are taxpayer favorable provisions that, that expire. And so when they expire, someone's taxes go up. There are a very small number that are actually expiring like tax increases. Um, but, but for the most part, they're, they're tax temporary tax relief provisions, uh, and so they're called extenders because there's political interest, political pressure to uh, to not let them expire and to 
change the the termination or the expiration date on those provisions, either to make them permanent or to extend them for some defined period of time. And the 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 legislative effort to do that is is referred to as as the tax extenders effort. The extenders are generally they're they're like tax breaks or something that are intended to incentivize certain behavior. And it, it, as you say, benefits the uh, the taxpayer, generally speaking. Um, uh, two two questions there. You can take one or the other or, or both. But um, generally speaking, um, in your experience with these tax extenders, <clears throat> do they work uh, to to incentivize the the desired behavior? And secondly, are they are they limited this way? I mean, is there a cynical reason for limiting this way? You could say one reason could be you want to see if they work and if they're you know turn out to to be beneficial. The other one is politicians want to have something hanging out there that, uh, well, frankly, people need to, you know, contribute uh, uh, to to <laughs> the so lobbyist employment program. You know, we've got to keep these things going. So there's, mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about that with some political veterans on, a, on the program. But but, you know, how effective are they? And, and is it, should we just make them permanent? Well, gosh, it's really hard to answer that question, um, you know, with respect to the entirety of, of, the, yeah. of the package. <laughs> I think it's sort of, it's, it's really almost a case by case basis, right? You can go through them um, and analyze them one by one. You're, you're absolutely right. The vast majority are intended to inv- incentivize some sort of behavior. There are a small number that fall outside of that category. Uh, uh, people don't usually think of this, but there are there are extenders, for example, where Congress, as part of legislation, passes a tax increase, but delays the effective date of that tax increase for so many years. And then as you get closer and closer to that date, the effort to keep pushing it off becomes a tax extender. I'm making quotation marks. Um, there are also some tax extenders that just fix fix legitimate quirks in the law where the law doesn't work the way everyone agrees it should. Uh, but because of, for example, budgetary reasons, Congress doesn't fix it permanently and has to keep coming coming back to it. But, um, you know, as a general matter, yeah, you kind of have to go through on a case by case basis. There have been efforts to do that, too. We when I worked at the Ways and Means Committee many, many years ago, um, we had a, we took as, as part of sort of preparing for comprehensive tax reform. We took a methodical approach and we held multiple hearings on extenders and kind of forced people to come in and, and you know, and uh, uh, the, the stakeholders to justify them. And we really did try to do kind of a case by case analysis of every extender. Senate Finance did something similar back in the day. And this is this is many years ago, uh, probably I don't I can't remember, probably 2013 ish, um, give or take a year. Um, And so, you know, I I think some of them probably are effective uh, uh, incentives you know, bonus depreciation or more generous depreciation deductions for investments in certain kind of property reduce the cost of capital. And so if you kind of believe in traditional economic theory, um, you know, reducing the cost of capital and increasing the net present value of, of an investment will lead to more of it. So there's, you know, for some of them, there's an economic case to be made. Others, I think, are, are, you know, more sort of special interest provisions where, um, because of political influence, 
we just use the tax code to, to pick winners and losers and subsidize winners and, you know, winners because not because of economic merit, but because of, uh, you know, political influence. And in those cases, my my view tends to be that those types of tax breaks distort economic decision making and lead to a less efficient allocation of resources. And so maybe they're effective in rewarding a politically favored industry, but I don't know that they're effective in you know, improving the overall econ- uh, functioning of the economy. And I, and I would I guess I would add also, you know, some, some of them, um, the more temporary they are, the less effective they are, right? If 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 it's if if you don't know if it's going to be there in a year or two, um, it can make decision business and investment decision making more difficult. Others are intended to be sort of short term stimulus, and so maybe they they are effective if they're only in place for a short term. So uh, as I said, it's you get you kind of have to look at every one individually. Tori, you want to? Explore some of the uh, the issues about extenders uh, facing Congress this uh, land duck session. Well, I think one of the interesting things about tax extenders this year is for once, you know, we're here. We're talking about how Congress is late in getting their appropriations homework done. Uh, When it came to tax extenders, Congress actually got a lot of its homework done earlier this year with the Inflation Reduction Act. We had a whole bunch of energy related tax extenders that were either expiring or had expired and they were addressed in the Inflation Reduction Act. So the actual bucket of sort of annual must pass uh, tax extenders is actually kind of is kind of small this year, but there are some sort of there are some pieces that are related uh, to previous tax law that I'm I'm really curious about. Number one is the the child tax credit. Now we've had a child tax credit on the books for a while now, uh, but in, during COVID uh, there was temporary legislation that only not only made that tax credit larger, but also expanded it and make it made it available to more people. Um, also, there uh, in 2017, uh, as part of the uh, the Trump tax cuts, which we'll talk about in more detail later, um, there was a pay for there called uh, the state and local tax deduction, where we capped what people could deduct from their taxes, uh, their federal income taxes, what they paid in state and local taxes. And I'm really curious to see that if there is a tax extenders package moving this year in an omnibus package, George, what is sort of your prediction about do you see anything happening on the child tax credit or on the salt cap in a tax expender extenders package that travels at the end of this year with legislation that funds the federal government? Yes. Yeah, so I'm um, trying to shake up my crystal ball a little bit, which is pretty <laughs> cloudy right now, about as cloudy as it's ever been, I think, given, you know, recent election results and so forth. I actually, I think the second one is easy. The the the, the ten thousand dollar annual cap on the state and le- state and local tax deduction, the salt cap as we call it, uh, is is not is not going to be nothing's going to happen with that. So that cap, uh, that's a good example of a revenue raising temporary provision. If you you know if you want to call it an extender, but that cap expires at the end of twenty twenty five, along with um, a bunch of other uh, provisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that I think we're gonna we might talk about in a bit, um, mm-hmm. but th- they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna litigate that as part of this effort. It's it's 
Republicans are very invested in that cap as a major revenue raiser um, for for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, many Democrats, Democrats who aren't from high tax states, also many pro- more progressive Democrats, uh, you know, the, the the SALT deduction disproportionately benefits very high income people. And so you only, you have kind of an alliance between Republicans and more progressive Democrats uh, that, that that's not where we should be um, spending our time is something that would probably cost tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars for um, very affluent people, mostly in a handful of very high tax states. So I, I think that's a non-starter. Uh, for this for this year, um, the child tax credit. You know, th- if if there's a tax package, there, the child tax credit is very high on the list of things that would get in. Um, now, I think that's a big if. I, I think to have a tax package in this lame duck with tax extenders first requires a deal on an omnibus on the appropriations side. If Congress just does a a CR or a continuing resolution uh, for the short term to keep the government from shutting down and punts the larger question of appropriations into next year, that CR is too light of a vehicle to carry a tax package. You really need. So first, you have to have a deal on government funding for the year, for the fiscal year. Then in that case, you have something that's heavy enough to carry a tax title. And so if that happens, then the question becomes, well, what can make it into that tax title? I think there's bipartisan support for a package of retirement savings changes. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's probably number one on the list. Um, After that, I think the next tranche of stuff includes some type of changes to the child tax credit. It gets tricky because um, you know, the, 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 the child tax credit was originally enacted in 1997, but the sort of modern version of it was really part of the 2001 tax cuts. Um, it was expanded again in 2009. Um, there were changes in 2015. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 expanded the child credit again, but that expires at the end of 2025. And then in 2021, as part of the American Rescue Plan, the Democrats expanded it um, again on top of the TCJA expansion, but only for one year. And then that expired. So we're kind of back to the TCJA version. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of and the child credit. It's not like there's it's not like the extender is we do the child credit or we don't. Right. There, there is a permanent child credit. And so the question is, which of the expansion, which version, there's a long list of, of design features that are that are in play. And you could do some of them and not do others. And even the ones you do, there, there are dials. Right. You can you can do them partially or so. Um, I do. I do think that if there is a tax package, but I'm I will say that I am on, I've always been on the skeptical side that there will be a tax package. But if there is a tax package. Um, the child credit is higher on the list of, of things that could get in. But the reality is, I think there's a lot of ideological disagreement on some of those features that are going to make it uh, really hard to do in the next, literally in the next few days. It would, I'm, I'm, it, well, I was just going to say uh, one of the factors, too, would be 
the effect on the deficit if you did a tax package, it sounds like it would be almost all on the on the uh, deficit increasing side. There wouldn't be offsets, in other words. There didn't seem to be as as much of a consensus around offsets as there is about extending some of these or expanding some of these provisions. Yeah, Bob, you make a really good point. These December bipartisan packages um, almost never have offsets. In fact, it could probably say never have offsets um, or sign- I should say that's not true. See, they're not never fully offset. And there's usually not even any offsets, but sometimes there are a few. In 2015, we actually offset uh, uh, a chunk of it, um, but not all of it. Um, and, and but and, and, you know, in the past, it's been sort of this bipartisan kumbaya. Yeah, we'll just we can do stuff your side likes and stuff our side likes and we just won't pay for it because it's December and Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> um, well, let me let, let, OK, let me challenge that, though, for a second. All right. Republicans have been saying ad nauseum for months and months and months and months that inflation, inflation, inflation. Right. OK. The government is putting too much money into the economy. So how can Republicans come into a debate about extenders and what extenders to put in an end of year package and then say, oh, no, we don't need to offset that? Yeah, Tori, you just anticipated the the but that I was about to follow my comments, <laughs> with, which is those those past experiences were when we had like, you know, no inflation and virtually zero interest rates. And right. So inflation, I think, does create a political obstacle to just giving away free tax breaks um, that has not existed for a long time. And it's unclear to me how much that ob- obstacle mucks up the, you know, the traditional process. I, my view is, Tori, you are right, that that um, inflation makes it harder to do a bunch of deficit financed, you know, tax cuts and spending. Um, and, and I do think that is what that's that is one reason why I am uh, more skeptical than I have been in previous Decembers about a package coming together. I mean, I know that in the past, Republicans have said, well, tax cuts pay for themselves because they encourage the economy to grow and and the increased revenue then offsets the deficit impact of, of the tax cuts. But we're sort of in a situation right now where we don't really want the economy to grow much faster, do we? <laughs> well, actually, well, I would always want the economy to grow faster without inflation. <laughs> There's a there's a slightly different argument that can be made. Now, you'd have to look at the specifics of the tax proposal, but you could argue that inflation is partially supply side and partially demand side. So you could argue that if you had the right tax cuts and they only increase the supply side, they would be, you know, disinflationary or they would help you fight inflation by increasing supply. But, you know, that's a it's a difficult policy to design that actually meets those requirements that you're increasing the deficit, but in doing it in such a way that you're only increasing supply and therefore it's not inflationary. I mean, it's theoretically possible, but not very plausible in in Washington politics. Right. And and I would say that, you know, the, the Republican tax extender priorities tend to be closer to that. I mean, they're more focused on investment, CapEx, R&D, that kind of thing, you know, sort of supply increasing, at least long-term productivity increasing type of um, tax provisions, whereas the Democrats tend to prioritize things like the child tax credit, which is literally just giving cash to people. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are discussing tax policy with George Callis, a former uh, top congressional staffer dealing with tax policy. He's now with Arnold Ventures. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing tax policy with George Callis, Executive Vice President of Public Finance at Arnold Ventures and a former top senior congressional staffer dealing with tax policy. Um, George, you, you know, one of the big uh, accomplishments of the Trump administration was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, passed in 2017 and basically was aimed at corporate tax reform. There were provisions aimed at both the corporate side and and the individual side. A number of provisions on the individual side, basically, are set to expire in the coming years. Those are different, I would say, than the extenders that we were just talking about. But these are major provisions of a major tax bill. And just as a general matter, in drafting the bill, Why was it that not all of the provisions were made permanent? The short answer is those great Senate budget rules that I know Tory loves so much um, (laughs) made it difficult. The original House passed version of the TCJA actually was permanent. Um, The Senate has budget rules that make that harder to do if the effect is to increase the deficit beyond the first 10 years. I have come around to describing the TCJA as two big pieces of tax legislation stapled together. One is in in 1986, Congress did a comprehensive tax reform that was revenue neutral, broadened the base, closed loopholes, got rid of deductions and used the revenue to lower rates on everybody. Then in 2001, of course, there were the the Bush tax cuts, the big Bush tax cuts that were just tax cuts, no no offsets, no no pay-fors that were set to expire after 10 years. I view the TCJA as like those two bills stapled together. You've got a big, permanent, revenue neutral tax reform with trillions of dollars of, of offsets. It's not just tax cuts. Um, and then and then staple on top of that is something more like the 2001 pure tax cut on individuals, not on corporations, but set to expire after, in this case, eight years, not 10 years. A lot of that had to do with the legislation being a partisan exercise. Democrats, and I'm not going to play the blame game. I think I think both sides had reasons not to cooperate with each other. The political incentives lined up that way. But um, at the end of the day, when you need only Republican votes to pass it, you've got to get 90 something percent of those Republican votes to pass it. And to do that, you needed to sort of buy the tax tax reform part, the 1986 analog, uh, buy it, purchase it with just kind of a big tax cut for individuals, which is kind of the 2001 you know, part. And so because of budget rules, you can, the tax cut part couldn't go on beyond the first decade. Uh, and so it was set to expire after eight years. Tori. I want to put a, a finer point on that. I agree with everything that, that, that George is saying. I mean, when this, this tax policy was first envisioned, the big problem at the day was something that we called inversions, where there were a lot of U.S. companies that were being bought out by foreign companies um, because of the cheaper 
tax rates, the marginal tax rates that they would pay. And so the United States was experiencing this huge erosion in its corporate tax base because all of their U.S. domiciled companies were becoming foreign companies. So what we had to do is, is a major tax reform. And that's sort of the nexus of, of TCJA was, all right, we need to address the international, you know, the, we've got multinational corporations that, that operate here and abroad, but then also U.S. domiciled corporations. We need to make them more competitive and retain our tax base so that we can continue to collect taxes here in the United States and thus not have to charge higher taxes on individuals. So that was the purpose. And those two pieces of the legislation came together nicely and were by and large revenue neutral. What happened is then you've got some businesses that are not run as corporations, they're run as you know, sole proprietorships, partnerships, et cetera, they got upset that they didn't get a tax cut. And that's where this whole thing kind of snowballed. And all suddenly we've got this whole big individual piece of, of the tax cut bill that gets stapled on, as, as George was saying. And because of the budget rules of using reconciliation to pass tax cuts, we couldn't afford to put all of that into a single piece of legislation and make it permanent. So we had to choose what's going to be permanent, what's going to be temporary. Um, the highest economic efficiency, economic impact was making the corporate and international stuff permanent. And we made the individual stuff, uh, individual stuff temporary. What I think is, is interesting, though, uh, was the timing of when those individual tax cuts expire. And we're talking about major individual tax provisions. These are things that affect the marginal tax rates that individuals pay and that uh, small businesses that file as S corporations, proprietorships, partnerships, et cetera. So, you know, these are the, the, the tax rates that, that they pay. Those expire, I believe, at the end of December 2025. Is that right, George? Correct. And that's interesting because uh, we have a very big presidential election uh, the year before, before that in 2024. So I'm very suspicious. Um, call me jaded, call me cynical, but I think every presidential candidate from both parties, doesn't matter whether Republican or Democrat, they're going to be falling all over themselves to promise that we are going to extend each and every one of these uh, expiring tax provisions, which I think we've seen this movie before, right? With the divided Congress and President Obama and the expiration of the, the 2001, you know, Ed, Ed Terra and, and Jeg Terra, the 2001 and 2003 uh, tax provisions. So question to you, George, is how do you see this? How do you see this playing out? Are we going to extend all of these or are we going to sort of sit and take a look at, you know, hey, we are, you know, $31 trillion in debt, and it's only going to get worse. Can we afford to extend these? What are, what are your thoughts? What is your crystal ball telling you about the fate of the temporary provisions in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act? Yeah, I mean, it is the great fiscal question of our time, at least until a year later when Medicare Part A goes bankrupt. Um, <laughs> and then a few years later when Social Security goes insolvent. Uh, but, but for like the next three years, it's the great fiscal question of our time. Uh, you know, the 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 2001 and then the 2003 tax cuts, which eventually kind of got lined up to expire at the end of 2010. And then what happened was Congress and, and, and President Obama agreed to kick the can down the road two more years. And so they extended them all for two more years through the end of 2012. You know, Democrats long campaigned on only making those permit, making them permanent for people earning under 
200,000 for singles and 250,000 for for married couples. Ultimately, there was a compromise at the end of 2012 where they were allowed to expire for people making over 400,000 if you're single, 450,000 if you're married, but made permanent for everybody below that. So um, the vast, from a budget perspective, the vast bulk of it was ultimately made permanent, but not quite all of it. Um, I think this time around, it's actually much more complicated because that, in that case, it was pure tax cuts. Every provision was a tax cut. And so you were just talking about whether to extend tax cuts or not. Now you have a huge number of, of revenue raisers as well, base broadeners, and, and you know, um, the, the tax policy center, which full disclosure is a grantee of ours, just did an estimate um, that that if you know the full the if if you the making all those provisions permanent, the ten year cost is about a little over three trillion dollars. But that hides the fact that it's actually about six trillion in gross tax cuts and about three trillion in gross revenue raisers. Um, so there's a lot of tax increases too, and and so I think. And, and some of those are trade-offs, right? So part of the expansion of the child tax credit that expires at the end of 2025 was a trade-off for the revenue raiser of repealing personal exemptions. So in 2026, personal exemptions come back and the child credit goes down. And so, you know, it's sort of like, well, are you going to make the bigger child credit permanent but also allow personal exemptions to come back when when part of the child, not all of it, but part of the child credit expansion was just comp was just sort of swapping two very similar tax breaks, right? You're mm -hmm. putting it into the child credit instead of a dependent exemption for your children. Um, and so how are you going to do that? Right. The 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 AMT comes back in full force. It it only really only hits people making seven figure incomes and above now. But but that expires and it comes back and hits people further down the scale. But the AM the AMT relief that people will want to make permanent was sort of partly a trade off with the salt cap we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. because, you know, because that, there, there's an interaction there. And so are we going to get rid of the salt cap because the people, the members in New York and New Jersey want to get rid of it, but also make the AMT relief permanent, which pe which people have noted would actually have the effect of making the salt cap more valuable than it has ever been. Because prior to the TCJA, the AMT actually clawed back part of the salt cap. And now you'd have a world where it, it didn't. Right. So um, I think it's but my mind is spinning on these things. <laughs> you it's would a really, really difficult discussion because the, of the, the AMT. I just said the AMT is the, the 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 much despised alternative minimum tax, which mm -hmm. you're saying is has not gone away. It's just uh, it may reappear at some point. Correct. I mean, it's got it, Right now, the AMT is really small and only hits uh, very, very high income people. It's hard to find a person making six figure income that's hit by the AMT. But but those changes go away in 20 at the end of 2025 and it starts hitting people, you know, down kind of in the six figure range. Um, but again, like that interacts with the with the salt cap because the AMT disallows the state and local tax deduction. So um 
it's a really complicated conversation to have. You know, my, my hope is that we will preserve, and this might be a, you know, overly optimistic hope, but um, we will preserve a, a lot of the tax reform, you know, the base broadening uh, mm-hmm. that's in there while um, making it more like a revenue neutral tax reform and not a, a big net $3 trillion tax cut. Whether Congress will have the political will to do that or not, of course, remains to be seen. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are discussing tax policy with George Callis, uh, executive vice president of public finance at Arnold Ventures and a former senior congressional staffer working on tax policy. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing tax policy with George Callis, Executive Vice President of Public Finance at Arnold Ventures, and significantly for this discussion, a former top congressional staffer working on tax policy. Um, You know, George, not too long ago, uh, Tori wrote a blog, which was called We're Going to Need a Bigger Boat. And uh, I think for people that are familiar with the movie Jaws, I think that was (laughs) they would know that Tori wasn't talking about uh, fishing uh, or anything like that. Tori, you want to talk about your bigger boat? (laughs) Bigger boat theory? Well, as you said, it's a reference to the movie Jaws, where, you know, at some point, Sheriff Brody, after coming face to face with the shark, turns around to Captain Quint and says in deadpans, literally to the screen, you're going to need a bigger boat. Um, and I, I, I pair this up with a discussion about revenues. Um, the message behind the blog was pretty simple. In order to pay for all of the things that taxpayers want from their federal government, uh, including a robust social safety net, uh, Social Security, Medicare, you know, that exists in perpetuity uh, without making any cuts to any of these things, because nobody wants to cut Social Security. Nobody wants to cut Medicare. Um, we're going to need more revenue. I mean, we're already running. We, we we have huge amounts of debt, $31 trillion in debt. 100% of GDP uh, is our debt. Uh, we're running deficits every year of a trillion dollars. Uh, as far as the eye can see, we're going to need more revenue. Okay. That's just simple arithmetic. This isn't even calculus. This is basic adding and subtracting from, from first and second grade. Um, so, and I know that there are a lot of a lot of, you know, common myths out there that, oh, we can solve this problem just by eliminating foreign aid, which, by the way, is less than 1% of our budget. Or we can just tax the wealthy. Hint, hint. There's not enough money there. Um, so we're going to need more revenue. So my question to you, George, is are there sources of revenue out there, whether it's tax increases like a carbon tax? or a VAT tax, or things that we can expend, investigate on the tax expenditure side. For example, there are a lot of things that we don't tax um, that are excluded you know, from our tax bill, like you know, the money that we pay for our health insurance premiums, et cetera. Is there, are there sources of revenue out there that we can go to that are least harmful in terms of economic growth and are least distortive in terms of the economic decisions that people make? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a really great question that people rack their brains over. I mean, we we are, you know, I think of these kinds of questions um, 
in in the context of like a bipartisan grand bargain on deficit reduction, we are our current trend lines, as you guys know, are so far away from like what could what is fiscally sustainable that the effort to close that gap is going to require huge changes that are just going both both from a math perspective and from a political perspective are going to have to occur on both the tax and spending sides, um, more revenues, you know, less spending. Um, and that's, it's going to have to be, I think almost certainly going to have to be bipartisan uh, and, and involve both sides of, of the budget ledger. Um, so, you know, in that context, the question becomes, well, what, what's the best way to get the, re- the, the stuff on the revenue side of, of the ledger? Um, putting aside and, you know, like entitlement reform and that kind of thing. And as you suggested, Tori, I think there may be some combination of base broadening, going after tax expenditures, tax breaks that exist and, and, and plugging those holes. I tend to go there first um, because I think those tax expenditures usually, not always, but usually represent economic distortions mm-hmm. uh, and and pick winners and losers. And getting rid of them um, is even though it's it counts uh, as a as an increase in taxes, you're you're really cutting a subsidy in, in most cases. That's what as what we are effectively doing, even though it shows up on the ledger as more tax payments, right? But, it, but economically, it's equivalent to, to cutting a subs, a government, you know, government spending. Um, so I tend to like to look there first. I also think it's probably politically easier, not politically easy, but politically easier to do than creating a brand new tax that doesn't currently exist, like a carbon tax or a value added tax or a, a wealth tax, although that's almost certainly unconstitutional, that last one. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, a car people talk about a carbon tax i to i've i'm I, from a policy perspective i'm find a carbon tax a very interesting thing um the the problems i have with the carbon tax from a from a sort of a fiscal perspective are number one if it actually achieves its climate related policy goals the revenue from it will diminish over time as we move towards a lower or even zero carbon economy. In theory, it'll actually go away. It'll go to zero because we'll stop using fossil fuels completely. Now, that's the theory, but it but it is sort of a diminishing um, tax if it if it effectively changes people's behavior uh, in, in the way expected. The other the other issue is carbon tax discussions. In carbon tax discussions, the revenue seems it's always almost always spoken for, right? That people have a carbon tax proposal that also gives out the revenue that's being brought in in some form. So it's so it's deficit neutral, but it's not a deficit reducer, and that's to compensate the losers for higher energy prices, right? And there are people have proposed different ways to do it. There's tax and dividend. There's people who want to give it out to maybe part of it to the producers if, if, if the case is made that the fossil fuel industry needs to be compensated. I mean, there's different ways to give it out, but everybody always has a way to give the revenue back out. And so it, it, they don't really think, they think of it as climate policy, not fiscal policy mm-hmm. so much. Um, you know, some kind of consumption tax, whether it's a credit invoice that like most of the world has or a retail, a small retail sales tax 
or some kind of cash flow consumption tax, which some have been involved in, like myself in the past. Destination uh, a, based a, cash a, flow. <laughs> a destination based cash flow tax, or some some people call it a business consumption tax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think those are those are interesting ideas that that can be more or, or less economically damaging, I should say, than other types of taxes like like taxes on income, taxes on investment, taxes on labor. Um, but those are very hard to do because it's hard to create it politically, very difficult to create a brand new tax that, that doesn't exist. I, I've always said we'll get a VAT when there's a crisis and you know the, the bond markets are going to collapse if we don't do something fast. But we're not going to get it in like a thoughtful, deliberative environment. Mm-hmm. Steve? Yeah. So, so what about the uh, the tax gap? Everybody seems to think if we just give the IRS enough money, they can collect all the uncollected taxes and solve the problem. What what what's your what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, certainly we should be trying, and we and we work on this at Arnold Ventures. We should be trying to find ways to collect more of the tax revenue that is currently owed under the current tax laws, but not paid. Um, but but yes, there is a political tendency to see that as like some sort of magical honeypot. And if we just, uh, you know, let's let's write a bill saying collect 10 percent of the tax gap or 20 percent of the tax gap. And voila, you know, like we got all this money. I mean, that the, the tax gap is things like babysitters and lawn services and, you know, cash economy under the table tips that aren't reported and um it's it's I think there's very limited capacity to to rely on that as a major source of fiscal sustainability. Not that we shouldn't be finding ways to do it. We absolutely should. Um, but I think it's easy to to see it as some sort of magic bullet, which it's not. And of course, some of that is assumed into the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, Congress just passed. We'll see see how that goes. Um, right. Uh, we got uh, limited time left, but we, you, you were talking about the tax expenditures as maybe the best way to go or the easiest way to go rather than inv- inventing a new tax. Are there any specific tax expenditures that you think uh, would be low hanging fruit if there is such a thing? <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Not a low hanging fruit. I mean, we, you know, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we we went through them all. Now, that was a Republican only exercise, but that was that was to pay for tax cuts. That wasn't just to reduce the deficit. That was to to give it back. And, you know, we we were able to hit the state and local deduction, which is a big one. We took a small bite out of the mortgage interest deduction, but but couldn't go farther than that. Um, we really didn't touch the chair. What are the other big ones? Charitable contributions, um, 401ks and retirement savings, uh, health insurance. There's several health, you know, related to health insurance. Those things are pretty darn nuclear to try to go after. So would some of them be good policy to go after? Yes. The politics are extraordinarily difficult. All the more reason for the grand bargain, but we seem further and further away. Uh, The more need there is for one, we seem further and further away from doing it. The days of a Simpson Bowl sort of uh, issue are are really uh, fading fast. Well, let me ask you, I mean, if there's any any new ideas percolating out there that uh, you or Arnold Ventures are kind of interested in stimulating some thought on? I mean, I, I think what we've been talking about, you know, we just we, we kind of need to 
keep trying to come up with stuff, right? It's just, it's like fighting the good fight, both, both on the policy design, as well as just trying to, trying to make the politics better. I've, I've said to colleagues, people who, who, you know, but I won't name, I, I I've said to them, you know, like, come up with all these great ideas, but at the end of the day, if, if voting for this stuff is, is a political liability and not a political asset, it's, you know, it's probably not going to happen. And so how do we change the political climate? Um, inflation and high interest rates might, I, I mean, that's sort of like, are, are we, because of that, are we heading back into a, a climate like we were in the eighties and nineties where there, where there was politic, real political pressure to do deficit reduction because of interest rates and inflation? That might be the counter is that high inflation is a tax. High interest rates are a tax. How do we cut those, ta- making quotation marks, how do we cut those taxes? The way we do it is by reducing the deficit. Uh, George, I want to thank you for being our guest this week and diving into doing this deep dive with us on uh, on the tax code. That's all the time we have. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I have been talking with George Callis, Executive Vice President of Public Finance at Arnold Ventures and a former top staffer on Capitol Hill working on tax policy. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.